There is a sermon outline handout on the back table, and again, feel free to grab that if you haven't already. That may help if you want to follow all the the contours of this sermon, maybe even take some extra notes yourself. We are in Genesis 38 this morning, Genesis chapter 38, so I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Genesis 38. In Genesis, the whole big story of Genesis, as the patriarchs, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as those patriarchs are given great and precious promises from the Lord, it becomes painfully obvious that they must inherit the promises by God's grace alone and not by their works. If this were a normal story that the world would write, usually, uh, it would extol perhaps men as heroes, hide their flaws, make it appear that they deserved what they got in the end. Not so in Genesis. Abraham, the man of faith, had many failings. Chief among them, cowardice and deceit, driven by unbelief. Isaac, the promised heir, then repeated those failings of his father. Um, It's ironic just how exactly he repeated some of them. And he also tried to work against God's announced purpose for his own twin boys. Isaac favored profane Esau over Jacob. And then Jacob himself, of course, was a scheming deceiver. In the beginning, he was that. Furthermore, he later evidenced passivity and favoritism when he had a family. And it left his family bitter, unrestrained, and hopelessly divided. And what about Jacob's sons, these heirs of God's redemptive promises through the covenant with Abraham? What about them? Are they going to be any better? Not really. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob and firstborn of Leah, disgraced himself and eventually lost his preeminent status because he slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Simeon and Levi, the next two sons of Leah, they also earned their father's disapproval because they sought vengeance through deceit, cruelty, and mass murder at Shechem. Then we first encountered Judah, the fourth son of Leah, standing out in Genesis 37, where we were last time. (laughs) Judah. Driven by jealous hatred of their father's favorite and jealous of his prophesied authority over them, Judah and his brothers have stripped their half-brother Joseph of his robe of office, his long flowing tunic symbolizing his favored status. They took the coat, sometimes translated the coat of many colors, off Joseph. They threw him into a pit to die. But then we read last time in Genesis that Judah comes to the forefront with a different plan. Genesis 37 verse 26, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it? What do we get out of it? If we kill our brother and conceal his blood, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. 
they took Joseph to Egypt. Once that deed was done, Judah and his brothers cruelly deceived their father into thinking Joseph slain. Genesis 37, verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph was without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth in his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Well, now that Joseph has been sold to a member of the Egyptian royal court, Potiphar, captain of the guard, we are given a selective account in chapter 38 of Judah's activities over the next couple decades. Judah, the brains behind Joseph's betrayal into foreign slavery. And this further portrait of Judah does not improve our opinion of him. And this is how Moses prepares us to be further astounded at God's amazing grace to Judah and through Judah to the world. Let's begin with verses 1 through 5 in Genesis 38. But I want to first mention the big idea of this text, which is this. And you should have it in your notes if you have those there. It's kind of, it was hard to shorten this, so it's kind of long. Big idea is this. When he had done even more evil than his fathers, Judah was arrested by God's sovereign grace. When he had done even more evil than his fathers, Judah was arrested by God's sovereign grace. Let's look at the account in the text. First of all, as Judah turns aside to the Canaanites, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. That is, it was the daughter of Shua. Elsewhere, she's called Bathsheba. In First Chronicles, I believe. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. So these first five verses show us Judah turning aside to the Canaanites. He actually parts ways to an extent with his brothers and his father's household. He goes out on his own somewhat. And it's interesting the way Moses words this as he's writing it, that he turned aside um, to a certain man at the town of Adullam, whose name was Hira. So a Canaanite, uh, a native of the land, he became bosom pals with. And this, this friend's name was Hira. But that word turned aside in the Hebrew is rarely used in a, in a positive way. Um, rarely used in the context of just visiting a person or a place. Um, it's often figuratively used of someone deviating from the path of loyalty or righteousness, as one commentator says. Um, it does seem to just be a, a 
pejorative, a negative term for Judah kind of waving goodbye to his family. See ya. I'm going to strike out on my own a bit. Judah's family, family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course, were supposed to be united. They were supposed to be separate, though they would do have business dealings with the Canaanites. They would be distinct from the Canaanites, knowing that Canaan was the cursed line, as uh, Genesis 9 had, had revealed, and knowing that they were destined to, in the end, when the iniquity of the Amorites and Canaanites was full, the Israelites were going to, in the end, subdue the Canaanites, not be like them. But Judah goes and pals around with them, and then he marries a Canaanite. In fact, it's also interesting, the wording here, that he saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. That's a familiar sequence of words in the Hebrew as well as the English in Genesis. Um, it's familiar wording now in Genesis for covetousness and resulting transgression. The woman Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise and she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Or Genesis 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. Or Genesis 34. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized, or literally took her, and lay with her and humiliated her. So there's all this color that's in, woven into the very text to let you know this is not good. The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob seems to have reached the bottom of the barrel now. Not only have Jacob's sons sold their brother into Egypt, courtesy of Midianite Ishmaelites, Abraham's lesser descendants outside the covenant. Not only have they sold their brother, engaged in human trafficking for their own flesh and blood, but now Jacob's son Judah, the brains behind that betrayal, He's acting like profane Esau. He's taking a Canaanite wife and assimilating with the cursed peoples of the land. No concern for God's covenant with great-grandfather Abraham. And just as Esau's marriages were made also without the consent of his father and mother, um, we hear nothing about Judah's father Israel playing any role here <laughs> in this. Uh, especially in the culture of that day, it's obvious that Judah is distancing himself from his father's household. He's not concerned with honoring his father and mother. Besides, Judah's just participated in this big charade, right? This charade of grief that drove his father into perpetual grief over Joseph's supposed death. So Israel was an old, broken man, and now the young man Judah is moving on with his life. That's the picture here. And like Samson would later do at nearby Timnah, which actually comes up later in the text, Judah simply saw a pagan girl to his liking. He saw this girl and decided she was for him. No regard to the intention of his fathers that they remain distinct from the Canaanites. So we get to verses 6 through 11. 
And in verses 6 through 11, the, the end result of what we find here is that Judah delays and ignores Tamar's rights. Who is Tamar? Well, we'll find out. It's going to be his daughter-in-law. But Judah is going to delay and ignore the rights of a woman named Tamar. But let's, let's read why. Let's read what the context was. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So Judah's sons are dropping like flies. We're not told if Judah is aware of why, but they're dropping like flies in his eyes. <laughs> so verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house. Go back to daddy's house and... In other words, I'll basically... I'll tell you when I'm ready for you. <laughs> Till, till Sheila, my son, grows, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. We have a lot of things in this chapter, obviously, that are somewhat foreign to us and jarring to us culturally. Um, but here we have leveret marriage at work. What's leveret marriage? Well, it comes from the Latin word lever, which is a term for a husband's brother. That sort of brother-in-law. Um, and of course we see it later even in the law of Moses. If a man marries a woman and dies before she bears children from him, then there's a, there's a matter of inheritance up in the air. He has no children to inherit his inheritance. So his, bro- his brother has a duty then, unless there were ways sometimes of refusing, I suppose, but... Um, generally his brother had a duty to then marry his brother's widow and to raise up offspring for his brother, for his brother's name, and secure his brother's inheritance in this way through his brother's widow. And this was uh, not unique to, to later Israel. This was already at work in various cultures of the day. And then um, when this happened... Um, the children, as a result of this union between the, the widow and, and her, her former husband's brother, these children would uh, receive that share of the father's estate. Um, so, as, as I said, um, why was this done? It was done to preserve the dead brother's name and family. Um, It also ensured that the inheritance of the dead man's property would remain in the extended family. That was important to people. And it was also for the protection of the widow. Because, and this is of course very culturally different for us in our thinking, but the widow then, um, being married to the brother, she would not have to sell herself for debt, and she would not have to marry outside the clan. She would be provided for. So there's multiple levels of this situation. Well, of course, it says, for unspecified wickedness, God 
um, knew that Judah's firstborn, Ur, was a wicked man, and he decided to remove him from the scene, to put him to death. When that happened, Judah said to Tamar, Ur's widow, um, here, here's actually, he said to his, his son, Onan, the secondborn, go into Tamar, do your duty, marry her, so that your dead brother will have seed, will have children. Well, Onan says he knew that if there was a child born, it wouldn't be to his name. And implied there probably is he knew that it would diminish his own inheritance from his father if, if his brother still got an inheritance. So, in any case, Onan thought, well, this none of this is to my advantage. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll marry the girl. I'll be with her, but I will not give her children. I'll get all the benefits, none of the responsibilities. The Lord saw that wickedness, and he put Onan to death. Now Judah is scared and superstitious. Two down. (laughs) Both with this Tamar woman. I don't know about this. I have a third boy, one left. I think I'm just going to say, you know what? And he probably was barely underage, but said, you know what? Tamar, just hold on for a few years. Uh, we'll, we'll get you together with my son Shiloh when the time's right. But he had no intention of really following through, as we find out in the story. He didn't care about Tamar. He just he just uh, cared about his fears, his superstitions, and, and uh, in his mind, protecting his boy. But he didn't give Tamar her rights. He delayed and ignored Tamar's rights. That's the point you're supposed to get here. Then we get to verses 12 through 23, where then Tamar takes action. And Tamar manipulates Judah's depravity to get justice. Tamar goes on the offensive to manipulate what apparently she knew was her her father-in-law's real character, his proclivities, his lust. She manipulated Judah's depravity to get justice for herself, in a way. Let's read verses 12 through 23. And yes, this is sordid, but it is the breathed out word of God, so don't blame me. (laughs) We will be discreet, but we will read the text of Scripture. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Edulamite. So Judah is Judah is now a widower. And now mourning time is over. Uh, the time of weeping is over. Now he's going to a festive time, which was sheep shearing. And he's, he's a shepherd by profession. He has people working for him, apparently. So he's going to a festive time. He's going to be in a, in a good humor. And looking for fun. Looking for festivity. And he's with his friend, Hira the Adulamite. Verse 13, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
She had a veil on. He didn't recognize her. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Notice she's being sure she has his personal identification information, his social security card, if you will, his driver's license. She says, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. As I said, Judah is looking for amusement, for fun, and he sees a girl, a young lady, with a veil on, can't see her face, but she looks good to him. Oh, she must be a, someone selling her body. So I'm going to take advantage of this. And as we saw, it's Tamar. He doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. She wants to get pregnant by him so that she can have heirs and have an inheritance from Judah. So she very skillfully manipulates Judah's own sin. And yes, this is a sin on her part. She should have gone about getting justice in an entirely different way, but this is what she did. And remember, she apparently is a Canaanite herself. <laughs> um, just remember that. Uh, the idea of a cult prostitute is mentioned here, which also should remind us of the depravity of the Canaanites, because... This would be temple prostitution. Women and men selling their bodies in the name of worship of the gods. Because the, the pagan idea was, um, if, if they engage in this ritual prostitution, then that would guarantee the fertility of their people and their land and their animals. The, the gods of fertility would, would be pleased with this. That was religion. In Canaan. It's interesting, Hira actually has the guts, a Canaanite has the guts to ask fellow Canaanites, Where, where's the cult prostitute that was around here? And it's not like uh, something people keep hush hush, but they just say there wasn't one here. But Judah's engaged in all this, he's neck deep in it all. One with the culture. Now, we find out, but we already found out that Tamar did become pregnant through this incident. Now we come to verses 24 through 26, where Judah is caught in his hypocrisy toward Tamar. He's caught in his hypocrisy toward Tamar. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. 
Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Now you understand that would be um, viewed as a huge insult to Judah's family, her being the widow of two of his sons. And it would be viewed as adultery, even though her husbands were dead, and, and adultery towards Sheila, to whom she was supposedly promised. And there were stiff penalties in that culture. Even before the law of Moses, there were strict penalties for adultery. But Judah goes to the very harshest extent he could here. She's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Burn her to death. As she was being brought out, she may have been shaking, but in a way she's cool as a cucumber here. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. He had no ongoing immoral relationship with her. Judah, as John Currid puts it in his commentary, Judah is a, a biased and severe judge. He does not even allow her to defend herself, but makes a quick judgment. His family has been violated. Burner. In the previous chapter, it's also interesting, Genesis 37, Judah and his brothers had sent Joseph's robe, his personal effects, to their father to examine and identify and they cruelly deceived their father. And now, look what's happened to Judah. Tamar has deceived and outwitted Judah, finally sending him his own personal belongings to examine and identify. A little poetic justice, you might say. At least it's very interesting how it turns out. But Judah admits, he doesn't try to cover up anything. Well, how can he? But still... He obviously is no longer going to have Tamar burned or put to death. But he confesses his guilt. He, in fact, he says, she's more righteous than I am. And if you look at this in the, the bigger storyline of Genesis, it'll become very evident that Judah's confession of greater guilt here is a stark turning point for him. If you look at the timeline of the years compared to when Joseph was in Egypt, it's not long after this that we'll find Judah back with his father and brothers. We'll find him providing leadership to his family in famine. We find him taking responsibility. We even find Judah offering himself as a slave in place of Benjamin, the favorite. <coughs> and Judah is the one who intercedes with Joseph, the governor, when he doesn't know it's Joseph. Offering himself up in the place of his brother Benjamin. From this humble, this moment of humble confession and repentance, Judah is transformed by God's grace. That becomes evident. But he has to, he has to ram into this stark exposure of his own sin first. 
It took hard providences. It took severe mercies to stop Judah in his tracks. He had to be exposed in his wickedness. And not only that, people get exposed all the time without repenting. But his heart had to change so he would own up to his sin in the right way. Like his descendant, King David, Judah had to be brought to harsh moral outrage. Put her to death, or as David said, that man should be put to death. Who did that? Judah had to be brought to harsh moral outrage only to have the finger pointed back at him. You're the man. You're the one who sinned. Now, before we get to application, there is an epilogue here. Tells us what happened with this pregnancy. It reveals the amazing grace which turned depravity and scandal into the fulfillment of God's promises. In fact, Judah and Tamar would bring forth the royal dynasty of David. That unholy union is what God used to sire, eventually, David and his line. And the promised seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. This was God's plan so that he alone would get the glory for redemption accomplished. Not some supposedly upstanding family. Not the good works of men. This was God's plan from the beginning to glorify himself. God saves his people by grace alone, through faith alone, not by their works, so that no one may boast. But let's look at God's surprising plan which is again revealed in the birth of the twins here. Verses 27 through 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach, what a breakthrough you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. (laughs) There are echoes here of the birth of two other twins, Jacob and Esau. (laughs) Even little details like the first one to put his hand out, they tied a red thread to it. Esau, the red one, Edom, came out all red and hairy. Um, But, yeah, there, there are echoes here of how There's these two twins in the womb, and the unexpected one would in the end get the preeminence. That's the idea. Perez means breach or burst or breakthrough. His brother is about to come out first, and Perez, you know, so to speak, Perez says, Oh, no, you don't. And he he comes out first of the womb. And so he's the firstborn before his twin brother who's called Zerah, meaning to rise, to come forth, more of a natural emergence. Turn to Ruth, the book of Ruth, in your Bibles. The story of Perez lives on and is uh, worked with. Of course, I'm not going to go through the whole story of the book of Ruth. I think many of you are familiar with that already. In Ruth, there is someone from this tribe of Judah... Many centuries later, who went to sojourn in the country of Moab, outside the promised land with pagans, 
he and his wife and his two sons. His name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. His, and then his two sons married Moabite women, pagan women, one of them being Ruth. But then Elimelech and his two sons died in Moab. And the Lord brought his widow Naomi and one of the Moabite widows, Ruth, back to the land of Israel, to Bethlehem in Judah. And to make a long story short, a descendant of of Judah through Perez, named Boaz, becomes the kinsman redeemer. It's not exactly the same as the leveret marriage we saw in Genesis, but uh, Boaz is near of kin, and so he marries Ruth the widow to restore the inheritance for Ruth and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Similar situation in some ways. But go to Ruth chapter 4, verse 9. See what it says when the city elders, the officials at the city gate in Bethlehem, affirm that Boaz is going to marry Ruth and thus redeem the inheritance. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And look at this, verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. That scandal became a way of people wishing the best of God's blessing on others. May you be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now to look down at verse 18 of that text, or Ruth 4, verse 18. It's interesting, at the end of the book of Ruth, it's calling out Perez. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, through Ruth, that is. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And if we would go to the Gospel of Matthew, we've preached on this before, Matthew chapter 1. Of course, we would see the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's called out in the line of Christ, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And then Perez fathers Hezron and so on. And the line comes down then to Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, by a harlot, a Canaanite harlot. Yet she's in the line of Christ. Another scandalous woman who becomes part of the line of God's gracious plan. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, the Moabitess, the pagan turned convert. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then it wraps it all up later by saying, these are the generations by which we got from Abraham to David to Christ. 
Indeed, it was through Perez that the lion of the tribe of Judah came. As Jacob, renamed Israel, would say in Genesis 49, verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares to stir him up? The scepter will not depart from Judah. I'm reading from the Nazbi here. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Till the Messiah, the one to whom it belongs, comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God loves to do this in the story of the Bible, the true story. He will expose people in their sin. He will bring judgment for their sin. And yet, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So that God gets all the glory and we have no room, we think, to boast before God. Well, what are the applications of this text? There's three. Three that I'm calling out today. And just like the story, I want to start with the bad news and work our way to the good news. First application I'm calling out here is that you need to do something. First of all, abhor your treachery against God's grace. Abhor your treachery against God's grace. In the broader context of Genesis, we've said this episode in Judah's life reveals the depths to which he had sunk, his treachery against the privileges God had given him, the promises that he knew. Judah was a circumcised son of the Old Covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To his father was given the promise of the woman's conquering seed, the offspring who would crush the serpent's head. The offspring who would possess the gate of his enemies and in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. His fathers had been called out from the nations to be God's special people. Separate from the cursed line of Canaan, whom they would one day subdue. God had set his electing love on Abraham. So that Abraham, as it says in Genesis eighteen nineteen, would command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord might bring to Abraham what he had promised him. And what had Judah done as the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He had participated in a murderous plot against his father's beloved and chosen heir. Indeed, God's prophesied ruler before whom Judah must one day bow. Then Judah had led his brothers to instead sell Joseph as a slave to the heathen, far away from the promised land. Next, he had strayed from his father's household to befriend Canaanites, to marry a Canaanite, and be seduced by Canaan's abominations. In that environment, at least two of Judah's boys grew up to be wicked men in their own right, whom God rooted out of his chosen people for that reason. Then Judah was driven by superstition to indefinitely deny Tamar her legal rights. Then his brazen lust led him to unwittingly use his daughter-in-law as a whore. 
And finally, he demanded the very harshest form of retribution toward Tamar for the very sort of sin that he himself had boldly indulged. Just because he thought Tamar had disgraced his family and authority. I'll show her. Then it all came crashing in on him. Judah was not the offended party. He was the antagonist. He was the bad guy of the story. But he had to see that. He was the brazen offender. He was the one who had compounded his own guilt before the God of his fathers many times over. So you see Judah's treachery against God's grace to him, don't you? It's impossible to miss. Well, do you see your treachery against God's grace? What privileges and promises do you have from the Lord? How have you spitefully turned aside from those things to go your own way? How have you strayed like a stubborn sheep? Scripture says we all have. Have you heard God's gospel promises for many years, maybe even your whole life? What have you done with that promise? That all those who turn from their own way to entrust their souls to Jesus Christ have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. What have you done with it? How long have you had the Bible in your native tongue? Right on your shelf or on your device. How many faithful sermons have you heard? Some of you had sincere Christians for parents. Some of you were raised in the fear of the Lord. You were taught to abhor sin. You were taught to seek God's righteousness by faith. And I'm not standing here looking down at you as though some of us are above you. But we're sinners and we know that you're a sinner too. We know what we sinners do. What are you doing with those immense spiritual privileges you have? How are you reacting to them? Have you turned aside in your heart and life to the Canaanites? Have you treated godly people with a degree of spite, perhaps? Maybe you've suppressed the truth in your unrighteousness, greedy for your own gain, for your own pleasure, for your own popularity in some way. Have you found yourself harshly condemning the sins of others, maybe ranting about all the hypocrites around you and at church? But you never take a look in the mirror at your own hypocrisy, that you're not living out what you know to be true. You may not be as publicly scandalous as Judah, but you have the same seeds of sin in your heart. You need to see your sin, your treachery against God's grace. You need to lower your defenses, just like Judah had to. And just honestly see what you are in God's eyes. And when you see your treachery, your wickedness, you have to abhor it. Stop cherishing it and defending it. We all have rationalizations in our heads for why we do what we do. But lay that aside. Be honest with God. And once you agree with God's own abhorrence of your sin, and God loves you, but he does does hate sin. Once you agree with God about that, you have to give it up. In other words, this brings us to our second application You have to surrender your self-righteous hypocrisy. 
It's not just a few really bad people who are hypocrites. Every sinner is a hypocrite to some extent. That's the nature of sin. Surrender your self-righteous hypocrisy. The turning point for Judah was when he admitted that the evil outside him was surpassed by the evil inside of him. He didn't say she's righteous. He said she's more righteous than I. The woman who had taken advantage of him, deceived him, manipulated him, humiliated him, was no worse than he himself was. He surrendered his self-righteous hypocrisy. He exchanged his proud bluster and his double standards for humble repentance. What about you? Scripture, of course, speaks this way to every sinner. Romans 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Further down in Romans chapter 2, verse 21, Paul especially zeroes in on the Jews. Interestingly, those who bore Judah's name. (laughs) The Jews who thought themselves above the sinners in pagan society because they had the law of God. They knew the word of God. They had the covenant of circumcision. But he says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now I've been speaking to those who have not yet experienced repentance in their life, but Christian... Christian, if you have come to repentant faith in Christ, you still have to fight that old inclination to self-righteous hypocrisy. It's still there. You have a new nature now, but you still have sin within you. Self-righteous hypocrisy. You daily have to surrender that to Christ. You have to admit it and lay it aside. Tell me, how much time and energy do you devote to noting the sins of others? How much of your silent thoughts does that consume? How many of your conversations with others? How many of my thoughts and words are devoted to condemning the sins of others? Well, then I have to ask myself this. How does that compare to the time and energy I devote to searching out and condemning my own sins? It's all fun and games while we're talking about other people. How much time do you spend in the word of God searching it out on a search and destroy mission for your own sin? When we ask ourselves these kinds of questions, our stubborn hypocrisy is quickly exposed. And we have to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Psalm 139 is very enlightening. 
as David, the psalmist, has described just how thoroughly and intimately God knows him inside and out. And then, and he's saying this in Psalm 139 to say, God knows that I'm what I say I am, that I'm a man of integrity and my enemies are lying about me. And so he says, Psalm 139, verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So it's right, and there is a place for recognizing evil out there and calling it what it is. But listen to what he says next. He looks back inside his own heart, and he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If we've come to the end of ourselves, whether for the first time or coming back to the cross in that way, if we abhor our treachery against God's grace, if we surrender our self-righteous hypocrisy, what then? Well, then we're ready to notice and rejoice in God's grace that brought us to that repentance, that brought us an undeserved inheritance. The reason God brings you to repentance, to face up to your sin, is that you can actually enjoy his unmerited favor then. God wants you to have his grace, to receive and rejoice in his grace, but you can't do that until you face your sin. That brings us to the third point of application. As we, as we see that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more, that God wounds us that he might heal us, and it's all by his free goodness, his grace that won't be thwarted by our sin, Third, we must extol God's almighty grace in our lives. Extol, lift it up, rejoice in it. In God's grace that is almighty and that will not be overcome by our sin, but that overcomes our sin. Judah's story was written down by Moses as an example for the people of Israel. Because just like Judah was treacherous to the God of the covenant, so were they. You know that if you've read the other books of Moses. And just as God's almighty grace both exposed and overcame Judah's wickedness, God's grace would do the same thing for his new covenant people. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Um, For sake of time, I'll skip a little bit. But 
Ezekiel 36, God says in a similar context to Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jumping down to verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. What I'm going to do is grace. It's not because of what you did. It's in spite of what you did. And what is this Sprinkling with clean water. This indwelling of God's spirit. What's God saying he's going to do for them? As Jesus said, it's being born of water and the spirit. He's looking back to Ezekiel here. The new birth. It's cleansing from sin and imparting righteousness, which the Holy Spirit brings when he creates faith in the promised Savior, in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And later he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God commands all people everywhere, not just the Jews, all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And many of you have done that. If you have, that's only because God's almighty grace prevailed. You had no spiritual life. You had no inclination to trust or love God. You had no sincere desire to turn from your sin unless God's grace grabbed you. But God's grace for many of us has stopped us in our tracks. It's given us a new heart. It's made us alive in Christ. It's granted us the heart to believe the gospel, to believe the message that the Son of God took to himself a true human nature so he could live a perfect life of righteousness in the place of sinners, so he could die as a perfect substitute in the place of guilty sinners. So he could rise from the dead to inherit eternal life for us. We have to give up on our own deeds and status before God. We have to realize how rotten those are before God. And we have to simply come to God, welcoming what Jesus has done in our place as our sinless substitute. No one sincerely clings to that message of salvation unless 
God's grace has made them new. So we need to give the credit to, we need to extol God's almighty grace. Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you miss that, you miss everything in the Bible. If you think this is a morality tale of how good people can get to God by being good, you've missed it. It's the story of people like Judah and Tamar and you who need a Savior. And God will save you if you confess your sins and turn from them to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your grace. None of us deserve it. Help us to search our hearts. Whether we're believers, help us to search them afresh. Not in morbid introspection, but wanting your grace to do its full work in us. If, well, Lord, I, I, I do believe there are some here without Christ. And I ask that you will bring them to the end of themselves so that they can have the joy of knowing you truly with the sin taken out of the way. Help us to have these hard truths about sin sink in. And more importantly, may the truths about your grace sink in and change our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.